Welcome to this Burlington Audio Podcast. We hope you will be encouraged and inspired in your faith as you listen to this message. We'd love to hear what you think. Please be in touch with us through the website. More information and many more podcasts are all at burlingtonbaptist.org.uk. Thanks for listening. Indeed, new term, new series. I'm overwhelmed by the sense of excitement. Ephesians chapter 4, have it open in front of you. Um, It will be helpful, I think, uh, this morning for you to do that. The letter to the Ephesians is not a highly, this is the term scholars use, not a highly contextualized document. And what they mean by that is that uh, Paul in his letter to the Ephesians is not writing uh, to address some specific situations. So when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, for example, we're quite acutely aware that we're only listening, reading one side of the story. It's like there are some issues that are are being addressed and we're not quite sure what those issues are. So is what Paul is saying normative for everybody or is it specific because he's trying to redress or address some particular issue that's going on in the life of the church? Now everybody agrees that Ephesians isn't like that. Uh, It was a circular document that went to the church in Ephesus, which was the the strongest, fastest growing church in the early church, first 300 years of Christendom. And it was a letter that was passed around as documentary papyrus manuscript evidence of this document that was passed around to multiple churches. It's the closest we get to Paul saying, I think this is what the main deal is about the life of the church. And so instead of having to perhaps anticipate what, what he's addressing, we can kind of take it more as a uh, blueprint, perhaps might be too strong a word, but as a, uh, as a declaration of, hey, this is the way it could all work out. This is how it, it, uh, it could be. And it, if you don't know it well, it's a marvelous letter. The first chapter is probably the longest sentence in the whole of Christendom as Paul just waxes lyrical about the amazing truth of all that it is to be in Christ, that we're seated in the heavenly places and Uh, And we've been chosen and predestined and all of that great stuff that um, is there. It's amazing detail. Uh, And then as he moves forward and as he unpacks what it means to be united and what it means to be the people of God and so on, we get that, uh, those verses that we know particularly well at the end of chapter 3 about God uh, longing, wanting, able to do immeasurably more than all we think or even Imagine uh, those verses are kind of, we're well versed in them, more according to his power, which is where? Already at work within us. So he says, hey, this is, a, this is Jesus' kind of mind-blowing uh, desire for the church is that God will do even more than you can think or imagine, not as some kind of hypothetical idea, but as some outworking of the reality of the power that not, not that you're hoping for one day, but that is already at work within us. And of course, there are no chapters, there are no verses when it was originally written. Paul didn't go, I'm writing chapter 3, verse 20. He just wrote it and he goes straight on into what we just read in chapter 4, that God would do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, that there might be glory in Christ Jesus and in the church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Thank you very much. That'll help me keep going forever and ever. Amen. It's good, isn't it? So in the midst of all of that, we then get these unfolding 
verses. So see verse, let's start at verse uh, uh, 7, following, because we get this picture that what's given to the church, that already has God's power at work within it, what's given to the church that is able to imagine that God would do even more than they can think or imagine, what's given to the church is five graces or five gifts that the ascended Jesus, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth, gives to his church. But to each one of us, verse 7, grace has been given you. Just give me two seconds, maybe three seconds, four seconds, five seconds. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high and he took many captives and gave gifts... So we've had, gave one of us grace has been given, as Christ apportioned it, verse 8, gave gifts to his people, and then a little aside, because Paul gets carried away like any preacher sometimes does, what he ascended means except when he descended the lower earthly regions, but he who descended is very one who descended higher than all the heavens. So in other words, Jesus is in charge, not just the heavens, but the whole universe, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Five graces given to the church by Jesus himself. Now, now just pause for a moment with me, just as a, as a base starting point. If Jesus has a gift for us, his church, would we be interested? We would. And if he had five gifts, would we be interested in all of them? I think we probably would. Especially when we understand what they are for. Let's read on verse 12. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all, is, how many people is that? As all of us reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, that's still all of us in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So we've got five graces that the risen, ascended Jesus gives to his church for the purpose of equipping them that everyone might reach unity and might attain the fullness of Christ. Firstly, a given to the church by Jesus, five graces. Secondly, that are for us to have the fullness of Christ. Can you picture that? A church that has the fullness of Christ. Not a little bit, but the whole measure. Imagine a church that has attained to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What would that church be like? Tell the person next to you what it would be like. Go. Shout out a few things then that you've been thinking about. What would it be like? Amazing. Because? Okay, loads there. There would be a sense of unity, a sense of moving forward, a huge effect on society. There would be a lot of serving going on, a lot of going outwards going on, a lot of the last, the lost, and the least, a lot of eating with sinners maybe. There'd be growth, a touch of the miraculous here and there maybe, a few healings. A few people getting fed with some loaves and fish. Forget about what you're bringing next Sunday. It'll all be covered. Little boy's lunchbox. Or not. There'd be something radically inclusive about a church that touches lepers, whoever our particular lepers might be. A church that uh, uh, always reaches out beyond itself. A church that is so in tune to say, hey, we're going to pray in the name of Jesus because we understand the Father's will. So we'd be up for that kind of church. There are five graces that Jesus himself, it says here, has given to the church that are necessary for us to be equipped for that kind of maturity. 
For the building up of the body, it says there, for the coming to unity in the faith, for unity in the knowledge of the Son of God that leads to maturity, the full measure of Christ. The implication being, is it not, that if those five graces are not present in the church, if we are not receiving them, welcoming them, unpacking them, recognizing them, that perhaps we will not be equipped for works of ministry in the way that we could be. That perhaps the body will not be built up as strongly as we hoped that it would. That we will not come to the unity we desire or reach the maturity or the fullness that we long for. Make sense? These are gifts to enable that to take place. Without them, it might be extremely hard, maybe impossible for those things to take place. I'll leave you to be the judge of that. But before we get carried away, note the completeness that we have here in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, these gifts, in a way, are talking about the charisma, the charis, the grace, the gift of Christ, but also it's the character of Christ, verses 1 to 6, that are also needed through the Holy Spirit in order for us to reach that kind of maturity. And the enemy has been ever so cleverly at work amongst the church in removing the quality of our character so that the graces and the charisma of Jesus no longer work as they should and become things that people distance themselves from rather than things that people are drawn towards. Are you with me? A number of times people say, let's not get into the, that kind of stuff because we'll, we'll struggle to be united uh, because we lack the character and the grace perhaps that we need uh, for them. Maybe that's what Paul is getting at in verse 14. So that unity that I was talking about, well, verses 1 to 6, the unity that's required Verses 6 following to the end of 12, 13, the diversity that's required that then results in the maturity that he talks about in those unfolding verses. Verse 14, then, then, if, if only these graces were upon us and within us, then we'll no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind and teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Christ, which is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I'd like to be part of a church like that, wouldn't you? How cool would that be? So this lovely flow, verses 1 to 6, unity, verses 7 to 11, uh, and a little bit on uh, 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 diversity, leading to the maturity of verses 12 and 13 following. Five graces. I've called this particular message, Uncovering a Problem. It's a problem that, if I'm honest, has niggled me all my Christian life. I became a Christian when I was 12, and uh, for those last 10 years that I've been following Jesus, it's, it's bothered me in various degrees, and in the following 30 years or however long it terrifyingly is. And I think I've been guilty of allowing what we think or I might think is the true reality, to silence some aspects of what the Bible might be saying. Gosh, that's a bold thing for a preacher to say. You've never done that, have you? You've never silenced a part of the Scripture because your own experience and reality doesn't quite fit it. You've not done that. Forgive me if I may have. Maybe you can relate to it. Of not taking this particular passage too seriously 
these five graces, because it doesn't fit with the way that we've decided or the world or particularly the church should be. We know that a church should be led by a pastor, right? That's what the Bible says, isn't it? We induct ministers into the pastorate of local churches. You remember an induction service, for obvious reasons we haven't had one for a while. An induction service is one of those special services when we induct, formally recognize, commission someone to be our pastor, and we drink tea out of green cups and have quiche on doilies, because it says those things in the Bible. So we all know about pastors. We have a good idea what we think they should do, even if they don't do it, and we're all personally, and we all personally know maybe one or two or more pastors. And when pastors work well, they're a good gift to the church. Do I get an amen for that? Great, thank you very much. You're a very warm audience. And then, maybe already you can begin to see where the problem emerges. So who are the apostles and when is their special service? And what do they do? Because I'm not sure I know and have I ever met one, perhaps in disguise or unawares? Where are they if they're here? And aren't evangelists big preachers like Billy Graham was... And what do they do now that big preaching doesn't seem to work in our culture? Do you have those in a church as well? Are they those loud ones, I wonder? Sorry. And prophets, those weird, wacky Old Testament characters. I'm glad they're not around anymore, aren't you? And so with a huge sense of relief, we get to teachers. Ah, at least a word I understand. We know what teachers do. They teach our kids at school. But what do they do in the church? Ah, teachers. They're the pastors, aren't they? But we've just talked about the pastors, which is all very confusing. And I'm not in any way being kind of critical, uh, uh, other than to say this is the journey, the the, the kind of um, tradition that we've inherited, and there's so much good about it, and we're in it because we believe in it in so many ways. But what we've typically done in many traditions like ours is that we've uh, appointed pastors... And the method that we used to appoint pastors was to assess them on their ability to teach. So, for example, when I came to Burlington and I preached with a squint and then I preached with a view, just like it says in Leviticus, going through the process, uh, when I did that, effectively at the end of it, um, and I wasn't complaining about the process, it worked out quite well for me, thank you very much, so I'm not in any way kind of being um, funny about it. That was the process that we all understood and we all believed in. Uh, effectively what happened is that we got to the end of that and you think, oh, well, he'll do, based on the way I led the service and preached. But you had no idea that I was to pastoring what Eddie the Eagle is to ski jumping. I hope not. But do you see what I mean? I didn't do any pastoring stuff, but you kind of said, oh, he'll do to be our pastor. And so there's this confusion that's been inbuilt into our tradition of what we now call the pastor-teacher. We thought, well, we better combine those two roles because effectively we've done that. And so you have churches like ours led by someone who's very strong pastorally. And people say, ah, he's a great minister because he visits, you know. Or you have someone who's perhaps strong at teaching. You go, oh, great, because I get fed. And, And churches will have typically, in Baptist tradition and in others like ours, have oscillated between those two because we've prized the pastor and we've prized the gift of uh, preaching. So you can begin to see why the whole thing is rather uh, confusing, to say the least. We know pastors lead churches, and we've used that universal term throughout Western Christendom at least. So you have 
pastors and associate pastors and executive pastors and worship pastors and administrative pastors and this pastor and that pastor, pastors everywhere. So how many times does it talk in the Bible about the pastor as a ministry in the local church, like a lead-type role? How many times? Arguably just once, which is a little awkward, isn't it? And I stand here sort of part of the system. I'm not standing outside the system saying, this is awkward, what are you? It's like, what, what? This is awkward, isn't it? But, but for years, I never asked that question because it was almost too difficult to ask the question because we, we know what we know, don't we? And when you know what you know, it's really hard to learn what you think you already know because you already know it, so you don't need to learn it. And so very easily, we, we've perpetuated, I've perpetuated some stuff. And when I start digging, I begin to get a little anxious that maybe there are some things along the way that we haven't quite got the fullness of. And so if you were to do your homework today, and the homework was to write a brief description of pastors, apostles, evangelists, prophets, and uh, teachers, you would have a good paragraph going for the pastors. Emotionally, you'd get connected to that, all the pastors that annoyed you over the years. You'd have a good thing about pastors. But you'd probably get the apostle down the bottom, and you'd be a little sentence, you know? That typical homework where you start off really keen and well, and it just sort of fades away when you get to the bottom. And so if we, we could talk a lot about one and maybe a bit more about the second, but the third, fourth, and the fifth would kind of, oh, this is a bit hard. I'm not quite sure I've got a handle on that. Because the way we see it, the way we have done it, has not helped us perhaps see some things. So Ephesians suggests that we need more uh, than pastors. We need more than pastors. Now, to be fair, there have been times when church structures and denominations have tried really hard to get a grip on this. And uh, our own denomination in particular has had a good go. So instead of just uh, accrediting pastors to ministry, in recent years we've accredited evangelists to ministry. That's a good thing. That's a, a recognition that the church needs more than just the pastoral gift. Other denominations that we might look uh, towards with great suspicion have, have gone, well, there are, seems to be an awful, not just the 12, there seems to be an awful lot of apostles in the New Testament. We'll try and recreate or recapture something of what the ministry of the apostle would bring to a local church. And, uh, and, uh, uh, and they've had a go at that. And of course, there are successes and failures, uh, of course, when anybody tries something uh, new. But the more I grapple with what's going on here and understand the unfolding reality of the New Testament... I worry that even that response is still too conditioned by our institutional mindset. And we all have it. We all have an institutional mindset simply because of the culture in which we live and the way that we've been raised and the churches that we belong to. And so we read these verses like this. Look at verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, I notice in the NIV and the pews it says some, more recent translations have removed the some because they realize it's not very accurate. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, this is how we read it, i.e. the leaders, so Christ has appointed some leaders, some apostles, some leaders that are prophets, some leaders that are, so Jesus gave gifts to some people to equip all the other people for the work of ministry. Now, that has been a more progressive way of reading the verses and understanding them. And that has kind of suited us in Baptist circles because we champion the priesthood of all believers, don't we? Which means we're all in up to our necks in equal measure. That's what it means. 
We've all got to give everything that we've got because it requires all of us uh, to build Christ's church. So we, we like the idea of reaffirming that ministry is not about the ministers, but it is about us all doing the ministry to which God has, has called us to. And that's in contrast to other models where the leader does the ministry and the rest of the people uh, are required to show up and pay up. But the ministry is rooted in the person that leads. Now, that's way off the scale from what's going on here. That's way down there. But as we move in this direction of opening our, our hearts, our eyes, our ears to what might be going on here, we need to make sure we don't wrench it out of its context. Let's go back to where we started, verse 7 and see that these graces were for everyone. But to each one of us, how many of us is that? Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is not just for leaders. This is a gift, a grace for all of us. Remember those unity verses, verses 1 to 6. Those are verses not just for leaders. They're verses for all of us. And as Paul moves on to the next bit without coming up for air, it's still for all of us. Grace that He's not talking about leaders, he's talking about the body of Christ. And he says to each one, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Remember too that Ephesians was this uh, constitution of the church that was going around to lots of uh, churches. So to add a third truth that we're learning about these graces, firstly, they're given by, to the church by Jesus. Secondly, they're necessary for the church to reach maturity. Now thirdly, are you ready? Five graces given to every one in the church. Every one of us has one. This is not a picture of Jesus giving gifts to a few leaders for the benefit of all. This is a picture of Jesus giving gifts to all of us for the benefit of all of us. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a radical thing in a way, but it's a beautiful thing. And, and it's a game changer reality. Gifts given to all the saints for the blessing of all the saints. A deeply radicalizing picture of what Jesus longs for the church. Where every one of us here together brings the grace of an apostle the grace of a prophet, the grace of an evangelist, the grace of a pastor, or perhaps more accurately, the shepherd, uh, a grace of the teacher. We need all five, and all five are already given to the church. It changes the way we think about ourselves, changes the way we think about our togetherness, it changes the way we understand how things could or should unfold. As we think about it, the implications become more radical. So with any new thinking, with any change in paradigm, it's easier not to think about it. It's easier for us to maintain the status quo than to allow something that grates a little bit with where we are to challenge us. But my invitation this term is for us just to dip our toe in the water. We're not diving in head first, because we don't know what rocks are submerged beneath the surface. But we can dip our toe in with an open heart, and say, Lord Jesus, is there something really significant you want to teach us from these verses in Ephesians 4? Are there some things that are eluding us 
that would help us do what? What's it for? To equip us that we might become mature. That's the prize. This is not an academic exercise. This is not let's just muck about with a few things just because it'll give us something to talk about on a Sunday morning. Are there some things here that would help us to reach a greater level of unity. I'd be up for that if they were there, wouldn't you? Are there some things here that would help us reach a greater level of maturity? I'd be up for that if they were here. Are there some things here that would help us experience and know and exhibit a greater fullness of Jesus? Then I'd be up for those things if they are here. That's the prize. And unwittingly, perhaps, our focus on one or two of these at the expense of the others has created a paralysis. We never intended to do that. Absolutely not. With all good reasons, churches have been led by pastors or teachers. But the trouble with the pastoral gift being given preeminence above everything else and pastors leading churches is that what we focus on, because it's led by a pastor, what we focus on is how well we create a loving, caring environment. Now you say, what's wrong with that? Absolutely nothing. But if all we do is create a loving, caring environment, what happens? We just decline. And you go, oh, gosh, that sounds familiar. And so there's a prize here in our thinking, something to, to grapple with, to see what Jesus might be saying to us. So the consumer that is ignited in all of us in that kind of church is that I go to that church because it cares for me, because it looks after me, because it loves me. Those are brilliantly good things, and we must be that church. But you can see how we'd get off balance if it was the only thing that we were as a church. And then you get churches, of course, that are, that are dominated by a very um, gifted teacher-preacher. Some of the mega churches, particularly are, are, are led and dominated by very gifted, charismatic preachers and so on. And, and they, people go, it ignites again the consumerism in people because they go to that church. Why? They go, I go there because I'm fed. You ever heard that? Sometimes people say, oh, I'm going to a different church because I'm not getting fed. Well, go shopping, buy some food. Uh, and that's this consumer mentality that, that what the church needs to do for me is feed me. Uh, and actually, in our tradition, that's been the bias of our emphases. Either a church that builds a really great loving community, nothing wrong with that at all, or a church that has really good, powerful, biblical Bible teaching. And I hope you would agree with me, there's nothing wrong with that either. But it's not the whole story. It's like we're playing with two of the gifts and we've left three that we really need, I think, if we're going to be a life-changing, transforming, Jesus-like presence in the world today, a few more things that we need to embrace. Could it be that we're trying to drive with a handbrake on? And if only there were a few other graces that we dare to unpack, that we might find a growth and fullness in Jesus that's uh, eluding us right now. So that's the journey uh, for the next few uh, months, not every Sunday. We've got all sorts of different things going on through the, through the autumn. But when we pick up our main teaching series, these five gifts, why does he give them? Why does Jesus give anything to his church? Because he loves his church. And he wants his church to be his representation in the world. We are the body of Christ. And if there are things that were true of Jesus, then it's right that they should become true of his church. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking uh, for your help. I'm asking your help because we, we long in our humanness, we long for your church to flourish and be everything that's in your heart for us. We long for immeasurably more. 
But in our humanness, we're not sure about things that are different. It's our natural state of being. We are uncertain when something changes the way we have always seen something. But we know, we know in life and in your word, that those moments when the paradigm changes become life-giving. We think of Peter who knew it only one way that he should not eat non-Jewish food. And you, by your grace in a dream, changed the paradigm, changed the way he'd always seen things, and it became a springboard for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. I'm asking that if there are things for us to see that we haven't seen, or things for us to come in sharper focus that we've been glad perhaps to keep blurred, that we would press on knowing that Jesus loves us, that he has good things for us, that we can trust him for the immeasurably more. And would you do more than we ask or imagine? So help us to open our minds and our hearts on this journey that we would hear in this day, in our time, in our moment, the call of the kingdom on our lives, that we would embrace it in its fullness, know that you're loving and that you're good and that you call us out of where we are, from glory into glory. Help us to respond to that call in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.